everybody, and first of all, a huge welcome to the first ever live show of the Irish Passport podcast. We are so delighted that you could, you could all make it, um, and we're, we're really stunned to be here. Absolutely. I'm Naomi O'Leary. I'm Tim McInerney. As you may know, our theme tonight is Ireland and America. Mm-hmm. Um, we've called it The Long Romance. And in case you were wondering, tonight's um, show is going to be recorded and released on our podcast feeds. So if you have any phones with you, if you wouldn't mind turning them on silent or turning them off, that would be great so that we don't hear your wonderful ringtones in the recording. I know like they might be nice, but yeah, better uh-huh. off without. Um, yeah, well, I'm, while you're doing that, actually, yeah. I would be really just interested to know because it, like, this is our first live show, so we yeah. could ask who you are. Are there any Irish people in the audience tonight? <laughs> say, say way if you're Irish. Hey. <laughs> and oh my one God, cork great person. <laughs> uh, two, all right. Two cork, okay. And do we have we'll anyone from, from France? Yay. Oh, say way if you're from France. Eh? Hey. Super. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. any Americans? Yay, oh, wait, okay, well, all right. We have an American contingent. Okay, yeah. fantastic. Anyone else in uh, other countries? British? Okay. Uh, Is that it? I think Bulgarian, Swedish, was it? Australian. Australian, amazing. Well, what a great international crowd. Welcome to you all. Kay de Mila Falcha. Kay de Mila Falcha, <laughs> yeah. And um, if you've never listened to our podcast before, if you're a newcomer to it, uh, essentially what we do is we talk about Irish current affairs and we set them in the context of the history which we argue you really need to know to understand them. Mm. Um, so I'm a journalist and Tim works on history. Um, he's an academic. And so we kind of pair those specialties to you know, match those things up. Um, and it's aimed at an international audience. We're just about to release our third season, yeah. and we've, going, we've been going for about two years now, and yeah. yeah, we've been amazed by the support that we've gotten. It's been really fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's really fitting that we get to do our first live show here in Paris, because it was right here, actually, where this whole thing began. Yes. Uh, about two years ago, Naomi and I were uh, having a glass of wine on a terrace, not, not that far from here, actually. Yeah. And uh, you know, things were, were changing uh, in the world, as, as we've all noticed, and uh, we really noticed that there was something missing from public debate. You know, Ireland was becoming very, very important uh, in international affairs very mm. quickly, but people knew very little about the context in, in which these things were happening. So we thought that, you know, some voice had to, had to speak up and say something about that. Yeah, that's it. We felt there was an Irish voice missing. Mm. And so um, we, uh, it was also clear to us that there was going to be a border crisis in the Brexit negotiations that others didn't seem to, to coming, but we thought was pretty obvious. So we wanted to quickly fill that gap by filling in the history and explaining like why this is really important and why people should really pay attention to it. Mm. So we decided we needed to tell the story of Ireland um, with a view to explaining current events, current affairs. And so what we did with a great sense of urgency that we needed to do this and need to do it right now is um, we went to the best studio available at the time, which was Tim's bathroom. Yeah. And yeah, if there's any Parisians among you, you'll know what a Paris bathroom looks like. So about one meter squared. Just about <laughs> enough to like encircle the two of us. Yeah, um, we're not very big people. We're not, so. yeah. Small room. Um, um, so if you ever listened to our first episode, maybe you haven't uh, heard the series yet. Now you know you're in on the secret. Uh, we're actually hunched over the sink with all our recording <laughs> equipment inside it. So. Balanced on the china where like, I'm hoping <laughs> it doesn't all clatter on the tiles. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's been like really an incredible journey from that bathroom to being here today in mm. this place of so much rich history, Irish history here um, in the Irish Cultural Centre and we're absolutely delighted to kind of share this moment with you. And if we can just think back to 2017, what that moment was like, Mm. um, you might remember this was the early days of the Brexit negotiations. 
Some still had high hopes for them, if you can imagine that. Um, it was a time when the Stormont government had recently collapsed in Northern Ireland. The DUP was yet to go into coalition with, uh, with the Tories in Westminster. Theresa May was yet to call that fateful snap election, which I'm sure she's rude since. Um, and in the Republic of Ireland, we were uh, still kind of on a high mm. from the momentous referendum which we'd had, in which gay marriage had been uh, approved by a landslide and, and became legal. And it was a moment when we're, people were starting to gear up as well for the next referendum, which of course would be on the issue of abortion. Um, but yeah, that, that time in 2017, if you can think back, there was a sense that things were changing. There was a real sense of a shift in the air. Yeah, and it, it, was, it was palpable, right? Yeah. You, you could feel that, that there was change in the air. And uh, everyone was wondering, you know, like how to, how to participate in this. Uh, we never would have imagined where the podcast would bring us or yeah. the kind of people that we would meet. Amazing people. Um, uh, I mean, the first person that comes to mind is one of our earliest uh, interviewees, and that was uh, the historian Catherine Corliss. Yeah. I don't know if, if some of you know um, uh, of this person, um, she's but she's a remarkable she's total legend. Being. Total legend. Uh, this is the, the woman who uncovered the tomb baby scandal. She yeah. basically found out that there were thousands of, um, uh, or hundreds, hundreds, excuse me, hundreds of uh, illegally buried babies under a convent and kind of rocked Ireland in a very fundamental way. Absolutely. And she's like a self-taught researcher. And she put that story together by putting together map data and investigating death records. And it was a really moving interview to do, um, to tell that story that really kind of went around the world, I suppose, yeah. and mm -hmm. really uh, drove in a way the, um, the moment that Ireland was in of kind of historical change as well, with the anger over the hypocrisy of the past. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, another moment as well that comes to mind um, in retrospect, actually, it yeah. feels, feels quite touching, actually. Uh, um, some of you might have heard an episode where we went to visit Hoth Castle, and that was home to the uh, St. Lawrence family for 800 years, since the 1100s. Yeah. Uh, they, they had been living there. And we, uh, you know, of course, the Irish ascendancy, the, the old Irish elite, are very much a secret part of Ireland. No, not many people, people get to see into that world. Yeah, they and don't we were people don't realise that it's actually still there. Mm, and it was right. when we went to Hoth Castle. Like they'd literally been living there in this castle built on top of a medieval banqueting hall with like the portraits of their ancestors all on the walls and the mm. place stuffed with antiques. And yeah, that was actually one glimpse of a world that was about to disappear. And a few months after our uh, report, that house was sold after 800 years. Yeah. And that's the end of it. Yeah. So in retrospect, that's pretty amazing that we got to uh, I'm delighted that we managed that. to do that. Yeah. Now, of course, we've been all over Ireland as well. Um, we've been to somewhere where we never thought we'd be in our lives, I'd say, both of us, no. to a loyalist bonfire in Derry. Uh, uh, excuse <laughs> me, a loyalist bonfire in Belfast. In Belfast, yeah. Uh, <laughs> we braved Sandy Row. Um, Indeed. Which, yeah, we never thought we would do in a million no. years, but we it did. It really yeah. wasn't experience. Uh, of course, we also were in Derry. Uh, we went uh, on a bogside tour with a son of somebody who was killed in the Saudi Bl uh, Bloody Sunday uh, massacre, mm. which, you know, like it was absolutely a, a, a ride really seeing just all these um, uh, all these parts of Ireland uh, yeah. with our own eyes. Absolutely. It's been a real roller coaster. And today we want to look at uh, across the Atlantic. We mm. want to look at the relationship between Ireland and the United States, both past and present. Um, now, Given the weekend that's in it, it is St. Valentine's weekend, we've called it the long romance, and we are in the city of love, after all. Um, now, like all romances, perhaps, you know, it's had ups and downs, this relationship perhaps has been true love, and at times, and other times, as Lady Gaga might say, a bad romance. <laughs> 
You pro she promised me that she wouldn't say that joke. All right, fine. Tim, you're so mean. You're like showing up on the stage here. At but you show. did it anyway. You did so it anyway. Mean. All right. <laughs> uh, now we just want to look at one slice of this enormous story, uh, the story of Irish America. You know, like th there's very few aspects of uh, life in the United States that hasn't been touched by people mm. from the island of Ireland, uh, which isn't surprising, really, if you think about it, uh, since there have been centuries uh, and, and centuries of like wave after wave of migration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this migration. You know, it's a lot more diverse than the famine. Uh, one of the uh, earliest uh, migrations, of course, were from Ulster Scots Protestants from the north of Ireland. About a quarter of a million um, uh, moved over to the southern states of America, mostly in the 18th century. And then, of course, there were the 1840s. Mm. Um, the 1840s was when the Great Hunger arrived in Ireland, and there was basically a mass exodus across the Atlantic. Um, it's estimated that between about 1830 and 1860, uh, two million Irish people made that journey. And those people were flooding into America, mostly into the cities of the East Coast of the United States. Mm -hmm, right. Yeah. And you know, that has had an epic legacy. Yeah. Um, amazingly, 22 presidents of the United States of America have had Irish ancestry. That's, that's way more than I would have guessed. <laughs> I just want to break in and say that. And the, right. the latest one, does anyone know? It's uh, Barack Obama is yeah. the latest uh, uh, president uh, to have There's Irish ancestry. There's no one as Irish as Barack Obama. Does Do you remember that song? There is a, a song. That is a I real think it's song. a great song. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he, he famously, he found his cousins in uh, Moneygall in County Offaly. Offaly yes. Had a pint of Guinness with them. So Looked uh, like a lovely... Yeah creamy pint as well. <laughs> I wouldn't mind one of those now. Yeah, well, we'll have one later. <laughs> um, uh, and of course, the St. Patrick's Day Parade is celebrated all over the world, uh, but the biggest and the oldest St. Patrick's Day Parade is not in Dublin, it's in Manhattan. Yeah, um, and l like we say, it's been a cross-pollination, so obviously the uh, Ireland had this massive influence on the United States and it also happened right back at us again, especially with Irish Americans who were really fundamental in the winning of Irish independence. They were very important in that revolutionary period in the 1910s and 1920s. And it goes back even further of that. There's a really quirky part of history from the 1860s, um, which is that the Phelan Brotherhood in the United States hatched a plot to invade Canada. And this was all a ruse to try and force Britain to relinquish Ireland, <laughs> if you can imagine that. Nothing if not ambitious. Absolutely. Uh, but yeah. yeah. Uh, so but this is, of course, you know, it's a very diverse, it's a very and it's a very complex uh, history. There's been good points and there have been bad points uh, as well. Uh, the Irish came to America sometimes as an, an oppressed people, mm. and then they often participated in building up ongoing systems of oppression in their new home. Uh, we've looked at this a lot on the podcast. You know, uh, one of the presidents who led the expulsion of native peoples uh, from the Americas, uh, from North America, was Andrew Jackson. Um, he was son of Presbyterian uh, colonists from uh, County Antrim. And then one of the 40 people to sign the Constitution of the United States was a man called Pierce Butler. He was from Carlo, actually. And uh, he went on to become one of the biggest slave owners in US history. And then, of course, there are stories that are very different to that. Like, for example, Mother Jones. Mother Jones, of course, gave her name to the eponymous magazine, the famous magazine. But who she was was a woman from Cork who emigrated over to the United States and became a union activist, um, an, an organizer. Uh, and she particularly campaigned against child labor. At the time, there were still lots of children working down mines and things like that, often for very little pay. And so effective was she in her campaigning that she actually earned the nickname the most dangerous woman of America, <laughs> which honestly, 
I aspire to. <laughs> One day, Naomi. One day. We can only hope. <laughs> but uh, the whole point um, of our podcast is to remember that history doesn't stop happening. Mm -hmm. It's still happening right now. And, of course, the history of Irish America is still happening uh, right now, too. Um, so the population of Irish Americans today is something in the region of seven times larger than the population of people on the island of Ireland. Stunning. Yeah. Um, uh, and among them as well, there are 50,000 undocumented Irish immigrants in America, estimated by CNN uh, currently today. Incredible. Mm. And it's such an important relationship as well now for current day Ireland with all those American multinational firms, particularly the famous tech firms like Apple and Facebook. They've all chosen to have their European headquarters in Ireland. So there's this massively important economic relationship as well. And there's a kind of an annual pilgrimage to mark that, which happens a few weeks from now, reco recording in February, of course, on St. Patrick's Day. Now, they call it the St. Patrick's Festival now in order to kind of squeeze every last euro out of it. Um, but what happens is the Irish tea talk of the day goes over the Atlantic and brings Shamrock from Ireland to present to the US president in the White House, um, you know, along with every hanger on from Leinster House. Um, <laughs> and I'm really excited personally to hear from one of our guests, Katrina Perry, who has been there for not one, not two, but I believe three of those days and can tell us what it's like backstage in the White House on that day when the shamrock is presented. So Katrina Perry, you may recognize her from the 6-1 News on RTE. She was um, RTE's Washington correspondent for several years, and she covered the seismic election of Donald Trump. And she wrote the book, In America, Tales from Trump Country, about her experiences there. So I can't wait to chat to you about that, Katrina. Right. Before we talk to Katrina, well, let's meet our first guest, Emma Dabery. Uh, Emma is a broadcaster. She's an academic and a commentator on issues of race and politics. And She's recently authored the upcoming book, Don't Touch My Hair, and that should be available between April and May, depending on which country that you're in. Uh, so everyone, get a pre-order of that as soon as you can. Yeah. You can get it on Amazon, Don't Touch My Hair, Emma Dabbery. Uh, so let's hear a round of applause for both our guests before we talk to them. I'm clapping for you, not me. <laughs> All right, so Emma, let me start with you then. Uh, can you just uh, begin by telling us about your book? Why did you decide to write it and what's it about? Yeah, um, so um, the phrase, don't touch my hair, um, I don't know how many people would be familiar with it, but there is, um, if you have Afro hair, um, you will be aware that there can be, there is a tendency amongst people to touch your hair um, entirely unbidden. Um, so the title is in, is in reference to that phenomenon. Um, but the, the content of the book is really looking um, so it's using like black hair as um, kind of a jumping off point to look at different social histories. Um, it's primarily a history book, but I think kind of similarly to how you describe your podcast and what your podcast is, I really go into history to talk about why things are the way they are now. So even though there's a lot of historical content, I have a chapter on cultural appropriation and I kind of give that historical context as to why something so seemingly kind of, that something that is dismissed as being oversensitive or banal, like cultural appropriation, actually comes from this long kind of legacy um, of oppression and kind of extraction of resources, um, kind of cultural and financial from, from, from black people. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, but in terms of like my own hair, yeah, I had a complicated relationship with it. So 
quite a lot of the book is biographical as well. My own story okay. is kind of weaving throughout mm. this history and this contemporary analysis. Right. Um, yeah, growing up in Ireland in the 1980s and having Afro hair right. presented its own set of unique challenges. Okay, right. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah and on that point, because uh, you spent the first few years of your life, first five years, if, if I'm right, mm -hmm. uh, in America. I did. And then you <coughs> moved to Ireland. So uh, y um, you told me earlier that you do remember some significant things about this. Uh, what do you remember? And how, how did that affect your, your view of both societies? Yeah, so I think um, my memories of early childhood seem quite clear and I think it's because there was such a distinct difference and such a sudden kind of rupture mm. um, between the life I had in the States and the one I subsequently had in Dublin. So we were in Atlanta um, because my dad was studying at Morehouse, which is a historically black college. Um, so we were in Atlanta, we were living with my Nigerian grandparents, kind of extended family. So I was in a very black environment. And in that case, in that instance, I, I didn't think about race. Um, you might say, oh, you didn't think about race because you were because you were young. But as soon as I moved to Ireland, I started. I really started to think about race. Mm. I, it was something that was kind of, um, it was something that I couldn't escape. So I went from, yeah, just very sunny, suburban, black America mm. to 1980s kind of, inner city, socially conservative, homogenous Dublin. Right. Right. Um, so it was, yeah, it quite was a change. <laughs> quite a change. And, and you've written uh, quite a bit <coughs> in, in your research about attitudes to race in Ireland and how they've been influenced maybe by America through TV, I suppose, or just cultural osmosis. Yeah, so there's, there's, a long, there's a long history. I remember when I was, when I was growing up and I encountered a lot of negative stereotypes about black people. I used to be like, where the hell have these come from? Like, mm. why are you so racist? There's nobody to be racist to, <laughs> except me. <laughs> um, so I was just, it, it really used to baffle me. And I thought that it was a result of, um, well, it was a combination of things. It was. I guess stereotypes that had been, had been imported from the US, but I really assumed that they were a result of more recent popular culture. Mm. I think the Catholic Church had a lot to play with it, had a, had a lot to do with it as well, and the concept of, um, you know, like charity and um, kind of starving black babies, right. the oh troker right. boxes, the tr famous troker famine boxes. and pestilence and all of that. So that was very much the idea that people had of Africa and then these kind of stereotypes from America. It might be the only image of a black person they might be familiar with might be that troker box. Exactly, right. exactly. So then when you meet like a real live living, like talking one and they don't like <laughs> conform to like mm. what you expected, that's a, that yeah. seemed to be a bit jarring. Uh, just to put this in, in context, <laughs> this is a little cardboard box box that used to be in every classroom in Ireland and you would the children would be encouraged to put their spare change into it yeah uh, and active yeah. charity and they yeah, would, they'd say out. pennies pennies for the black baby right. that's what that's what it, mm. that's what it was called and I remember coming back from Nigeria actually and being like um oh but like my grandparents have like a chauffeur and there's like skyscrapers <laughs> and stuff and I was actually pulled out of I was pulled out of my class and told to like stop making up stories and I had a chip <laughs> on my shoulder etc etc but that's not about America that's oh another story wow. um that's when I was about eight mm. um but so there's the stereotypes from America when I was researching the book um I was at one part I was I was looking um at, yeah, some of the relationships between kind of Irish Americans and Black Americans, um, and 
I came across um, yeah, something that was about um, Frederick Douglass, the abolitionist, and he'd gone on this tour of, of Ireland. Um, and he had encountered a minstrel show. Oh. And that was shocking mm. to me because you would think, obviously, minstrel shows are well known as being very popular in the US, mm. but it's not something that you would have thought um, was existing in Ireland. Yeah, yeah it's like minstre minstrel of what? Like, what kind of conception could they have had of black of people black in Ireland? Uh, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. But yeah. Thi this was something that had, even that long ago, yeah. travelled to Ireland. And apparently they were really popular right. in Ireland. It's like Victorian so stage shows, I suppose. Exactly. At the time, yeah. And so Douglas was really kind of like angered and upset mm. to see this kind of like lampooning yeah. of, of black people and the performance of these very damaging um, uh, stereotypes of blackness happening in Ireland. Yes. I think he was kind of right. shocked. And I was, I was like, oh, this, th there's, there's a long history yeah. of these stereotypes existing in Ireland. They're not just something mm. that have appeared in the 20th century, mm -hmm. but they actually, they actually predate that. Um, yeah, so well, yeah. But talking uh, of Douglas, but Douglas was famously uh, a good friend of um, Frederick Douglas, in case anyone doesn't know, uh, an escaped slave who became an abolitionist and made some famous features in, in Ireland and Britain. He spent like four months, I think it was, think in so. Ireland, yeah. more or less, and he met Daniel O'Connell, who was, of course, the famous Catholic liberator. And they found, you know, a certain amount in common because, you know, in the, in the struggle for liberation. Um, and he was actually introduced as the Black O'Connell, I think, at one event. Yes, where he I gave think a so, yeah. yeah. Uh, he also arrived in Ireland in 1845, which is just a really interesting dynamic, <laughs> of course, because yeah. the, the famine is just happening. So, um, and he gave terrible, you know, uh, uh, scoldings to landholders and say, you know, who were often also slaveholders. Um, but anyway, uh, uh, with that relationship with, with him and O'Connell, and later on in O'Connell's life, O'Connell had to shy away from abolitionism because he was afraid that he would lose the votes of the Irish Americans. Mm. So it's an interesting kind of like in-between position there of the Irish Americans. Could you comment on that? Yeah, so I think because of the shared... Okay, so that there are these really interesting moments of um, solidarity between um, American, black American pan-Africanists, people like W.E.B. Du Bois, um, people like Marcus Garvey. I know he's Jamaican, but he was in the U.S. as well. Between these... Um, revolutionary black intellectuals and Irish revolutionaries because of this shared experience of, um, well, they, they saw um, points of similarity in each other's, in each other's struggles. Mm. And they often saw British imperialism as something that is, you know, <laughs> oppressive, obviously, in Africa and, and in Ireland. So th those points of connection and solidarity make sense. And I think because of that assumption, because of those ideas um, about, you know, well, the reality of Irish oppression, there's, an, and also you have in the UK that thing of no dogs, no blacks, no Irish, mm. um, which a lot of people know about. There's this assumption that Irish people would have been necessarily, or subsequently, um, I guess, on the same side mm. as the oppressed. But we actually see that is often, very often not the case in mm. the US. And while there is Irish movement to the states that far predates the famine, um, yes, and lots of Irish people were active um, uh, overseers mm. and um, slave owners themselves, 
Um, you see so many Irish surnames amongst black Americans. Lots of black Americans are also of Irish descent. Yeah. And I think that's something that we forget about sure. when, right. we, when, we talk, when we think about Irish America. Perhaps it's an uncomfortable history <coughs> to, to think of because, y yeah. I mean, what that tells you is it tells you something about the history of slavery. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. But yeah, so, so yeah. many notable black Americans, Jimi Hendrix, Billie Holiday, lots of them. Yeah. Anyway, um, but um, when, you, when you have the Irish um, migration uh, after the famine, um, there is a, there's, there's, there's competition. Mm. Um, the, the Irish who are arriving in or who are there see um, emancipation of slaves as threatening to them mm. is going to undercut their labor right. and they're worried that there's going to be um, that w if, if, if uh, slavery is abolished um, there's going to be a movement of black people from the south mm. up into New York up into the, up into the north and they're going to kind of like yeah challenge uh, there's going to be like more competition for jobs. exactly yeah, exactly right. so I think a quite a well-known I don't know if, if people would be familiar with it, but like a really kind of graphic example are the draft riots of 1863, where <clears throat> it's actually really horrific. Like I find it really, really distressing. But um, Irish Irish people are being drafted in to fight in the, you know, it's yeah, a response to, to, to the draft. And they don't want to fight for abolition. Mm. So there's the, uh, this riot breaks out and, um, they, there's basically there's days of just attacks on black people by right. working class whites in New York, but primarily by Irish immigrants. Right. Mm. Okay. People are lynched. Mm. Um, I think about 2,000 people, over 2,000 people are injured. I think maybe there's 120 black people are injured. Mm. There's maybe 120 black people are actually lynched. There's a school for um, coloured or coloured or coloured orphans, an mm. orphanage, is raised to the ground by Irish immigrants. Um, Irish women and children loot the orphanage. Um, I don't think anyone actually, none of the children die in the orphanage. They're all, um, they, they all manage to escape, but a seven-year-old boy is lynched. Mm. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Um, there are just these really, and it, there, there are just these very, like, brutal yeah. and violent um, kind of relations. It has a huge, Im this, this riot has a huge impact on the population of Manhattan, which becomes a lot less black. Wow. <laughs> so black people leave, wow. leave Manhattan, and that's when you start to see that migration to Brooklyn. Okay. Um, which is already, which that's is really interesting when you think about gentrification of Brooklyn now. Yes. You have, I don't know if you have any kind of like yeah. Irish hipsters that maybe like move to Brooklyn. <laughs> um, right, the reason, yeah. one of wow. the reasons Brooklyn like is so black mm. is, yeah, kind of one of the motivating kind of one of the catalysts for that was that big movement yeah. out of Manhattan Incredible. as a result of the draft riots. Well, indeed, let, let's bring that same dynamic up to the current day. Be, uh, like, there's, there's um, a, a good phrase in French actually that um, it's it's a warning not to fight fight over the crumbs that the elite throw to you. <laughs> you know, like you're, yeah. you're identifying the wrong enemy. Um, but um, that you know, are we seeing reruns of this? If we think about the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, there's a huge Irish um, community in the police force in the United States. Um, and there's this dynamic again, you know, we, we investigated it in the podcast yeah. um, uh, in the past. We, we kind of did this episode which busted something called the Irish slaves myth, which is basically these 
fictional histories which are used for political purposes in the United States today, whereby um, these fake histories essentially are used to say, uh, to undermine, I suppose, um, you know, black politics, and particularly Black Lives Matter, by saying the Irish were slaves too and we don't complain about it, so mm. kind of shut up. They weren't, it, by they the way, weren't, this guys. is all. <laughs> uh, but but this, this lie has just, in the internet age, mutated and become very, very prevalent. So right. we made this episode kind of debunking yes, And part it. of that, part of what we saw, were policemen wearing, um, uh, I think, was it Blue, Blue Lives, Lives Matter? Matter? Blue Lives Matter. Blue Lives Matter t-shirts in Irish, but they had used Google Translate and it came out as, what was it, Gurum It was Over, like Gurum Coney. Which means <laughs> Oh. It actually means black, but you know, <laughs> blue in, in Irish means black um, oh. in, so in the it context of race. It was just gobbledygook. It was kind of embarrassing. Anyway. The idea of blue lives matter is because I suppose blue is, represents the police. The uniform. And it's like and this repost to black lives matter, I suppose. So could you, <laughs> could you comment on that, uh, on that uh, reviving, perhaps yeah. maybe even an engineered reviving of rivalries between Irish people and African-Americans? Yeah, so, that's so it's so great that you, did, um, that you did that podcast, and it's so great that there are lots of Irish voices, I think, challenging, um, that, yeah, there are Irish voices challenging that the Irish were slaves too myth. I think one of the reasons it's used as well is, is saying, well, well, we were slaves and look how we've prospered. Mm. Um, mm. So kind of as a, yeah. But um, it's even something, so it's become amplified um, kind of with, with social media, but it's certainly something I also would have heard growing up. Right. Yeah, even when I, when I would kind of contest some of the experiences I had, people would be like, oh, well, we, can't, we, can't, we couldn't be racist. Like, we were Irish people were slaves as well. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's just emphatically untrue. I think even though it's being, um, even though it's a, a myth that is being kind of circulated and disseminated for nefarious purposes, I also think there is some genuine misunderstanding and there are a lot of people who actually just, just believe it to be true. Mm. I had a very surreal experience recently where I was on um, an Instagram account that's actually run by a, a black person and they they were advancing that the, uh, the Irish were slaves myth uh, story and I kind of commented and I found myself in this um, in this yes surreal argument with um, people who at least their avatars were black I don't know if they were black but mm. their avatars were black Full flag. and they were they were um, saying I can't believe that you're denying this you're d I, I found myself being uh, um, compared to a slave master I was just like wow. what is happening how is oh this my god it's so convoluted <laughs> how does this happen but yeah so the Irish were indentured laborers right. um, uh, particularly in Barbados and I think that's where the confusion comes into play but being an indentured laborer is very very different I mean, it's shit. You don't mm. want to be an indentured labourer. Yeah. Yeah. But um, <laughs> like, don't get me wrong, I'm mm. not romanticising it. But um, it's very different to chattel slavery, mm. where not only are you a slave for the entirety of your life, your children's children's children will be enslaved kind of in, in perpetuity. And you're not given human status, so you have no, you have no human rights. Right. Um, with indentured labour, um, you can finish the, the, the period of labour mm. and you can kind of go, go on and potentially flourish. Yeah. And we know that um, many Irish who experienced this actually went on to become successful, propertied, mm. even right. slave owners sure. themselves. Oh so gosh. yes, the Irish were not That's slaves. That's the big difference, right? Yeah. the chance in life as well for generations mm. and like generations. Not, it's not like another human being actually owns yes. you, like owns yeah. like your body, and it's it's like, like one would own a cow or mm. something. And yeah. it's also the legacy of slavery. Like w w w 
so many of the um, so many of the damaging stereotypes that really impede and affect black people's life opportunities to this day are ones that were created during that period. Mm. So there's an enduring legacy that continues to kind of affect black lives right. that doesn't continue to... Irish people don't live with that kind of enduring yeah. mm. stigma, mm. even if they had that experience of indentured labour. Right, okay. Well, just one last question for you now before you move on. Um, uh, the, uh, the, to look at maybe at um, the future, yeah. um, li like you say yourself, in the 1980s, Ireland wasn't a very diverse country, and in relative terms, it still isn't. Um, is there anything positive that Ireland could learn from America, a country with a long, long legacy of you know, racial oppression? Oh, wow. <laughs> I don't know if there's... Okay, I, I'm, I'm going to come back to what Ireland could learn from America mm. about race. Um, <laughs> oh, what I will say is, until about 10 years ago, um, there, was such, there was such a resistance in Ireland, like to talk about race. And whenever I... I mean, I left Ireland, but whenever I... Um, as soon as I finished school, but all of these things that I would talk about would be greeted with such like denial, resistance and hostility. That has really, that has really changed. Mm. Like to me, there really seems, and I think it's to do with all the kind of like social changes that, that have happened with the, um, like repealing the, repealing the eighth, like with the marriage, um, uh, w with everything that's happened with the marriage. Um, referendum. Referendum, mm. thank you. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think there's there's this sense in Ireland of like kind of like social like progress, mm. Mm. and there are changes that are happening that I thought I probably wouldn't see in my lifetime, right. and I thought that if I did, it would be when I was much more advanced in years. Mm. Yeah. So when it comes to race, yeah, there do there really does seem to be a willingness to kind of talk about these issues, um, to have that dialogue, and I think. Have that like awareness. I remember I, I wrote something um, about 1916, and it was called um, "I'm Irish, but I'm not white. Why does that still matter?" or something. But it was looking at kind of 1916, like through my through my perspective, and I had anticipated there being like a lot of resistance to what I wrote, mm. but really. This is this was in this was in sorry 2016 and this is when I was like oh gosh this feels like a real sea change. After that was published in the Irish Times, I had so many people contact me about it, um, with a genuine sense of I can't believe that you experienced these kind of things growing up. I'm really shocked. I'm really appalled. It opened a lot of dialogue. It opened a lot of conversations, and I was like oh something something has happened. Some, something mm. is changing. Mm. So I feel, mm, I think also there has been. A there has so even though um, the non-white population is still very small in Ireland, it is actually visible, right. which is something that it wasn't mm. in my day. But I guess since the late '90s, it started to become visible. Mm. And where, when, when you compare that to maybe like what happened in England after the Windrush, and the level of racism, the race riots mm. that mm. occurred. I actually think Ireland seems to be adapting to that in a way that's pretty, that's pretty encouraging. Mm -hmm. um, I have lots of 
Irish teachers, for instance, and I always find this really wonderful, who write to me and say that they um, teach really diverse classes, they have lots of African kids in their classes. Um, do I have any kind of like tools or suggestions? Are there, th are there things that um, they can maybe like think about doing to kind of like help with, yeah. you know, kind of like integration and diversity and stuff? And there really does seem to be a genuine commitment from a lot of people to engage with a lot of this. So I do find it quite quite encouraging okay. and it's complete my whole relationship with Ireland has has shifted has changed yeah. as okay. many of us I think sure. has yeah, in absolutely. the last few years yeah, yeah well sure. thank you very much on no, that note well thank you yeah and I thought um that that point about seismic changes and things that happen very rapidly that people mm. don't see coming that might be something that I take up with you Katrina so um uh Katrina Perry, to remind you, um, was RTE Washington correspondent, and she covered the election of Donald Trump. So I wanted to start off, Katrina, by asking you, do you remember the moment um, during that campaign? As you might recall, you know, it was sort of the conventional wisdom was that Hillary Clinton was going to get elected. Do you remember the moment when you thought, you know what, I'm not so sure about this. I think this guy, Donald Trump, actually could win. Well, I was one of the few people who probably had that inkling for a while. Um, the others were other foreign correspondents who were in the US as well, because we weren't on the defined campaign bus or campaign airplane. So we were doing our own thing, wandering through the populations and actually talking to people, mm. old fashioned shoe leather type of journalism. Um, and when you get out of those bubbles, when you get out of, I mean, I was at plenty of Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton rallies, but someone who goes to a rally for a particular candidate is kind of self-selected already. They're there because there's something about that person that they want to see. Mm. But if you're just talking to folks in towns and cities, uh, randomly, sports clubs, whatever, you're getting a more neutral or nuanced interpretation of what's going on but for me there's a couple of things I remember one was in August September of 2015 so a full year before the election and Donald Trump spoke at an anti-Iran nuclear deal protest in Washington DC and sharing the bill with him were Ted Cruz, Sarah Palin, people like this. And there were frequent rallies like that in DC and you'd expect a certain type of person to turn up to those things, carrying certain banners and having a certain viewpoint. And this was lunchtime, late August, early September, stifling hot in Washington. No one goes outside their air conditioned offices except for a very good reason. And all of a sudden there were all these people there who had come to see Donald Trump in their business suits, students, uh, just a much more diverse range of people and I thought gosh you know he's only actually declared himself since June and in that time we'd had the comments about immigrants about Mexicans so on and yet here were all these people coming out to see him and that was a pattern that I then kind of saw throughout the um, the primary season when the Republicans were whittling down from 16, 17 candidates down to one and right through that summer was that he was tapping into people that weren't what you would traditionally have maybe thought as, uh, of as a Republican voter or as someone who would like the type of message that Donald Trump was sharing. Right, mm. right. And it, given the kind of, um, I suppose, the something like a social liberal revolution that's happened in Ireland over the past few years. Um, Ireland is in a very different moment to the United States right now. There's quite a contrast there. And of course, in a few weeks, as, um, as we said, Leo Varadkar will have to go and make the pilgrimage to the White House. Is that an awkward thing for Irish Tishi to 
kind of balance right now? Do you, f do you feel that they can, um, they can get away with not perhaps criticising Donald Trump in some way? So I think that annual pilgrimage, is, as you say, uh, to Washington, D.C., to the White House around St. Patrick's Day is actually more about the Taoiseach of the day meeting the president of the day. And mm. you have to remember that that's what it is because politics is politics, parties are parties. They're two different countries. They're two different electorates. So what people like at any one time in one country is not necessarily going to be what people like at any one time in another country. So I think it's very important um, and this is something that, you know, Irish politicians and Irish diplomats have worked on for decades, mm. not just um, under the current administration. Since 1995 or so, it's been this annual thing, I, I believe. Well, actually, it, it actually started in 1952. Oh, we wow. have we have this whole um, presentation of the Shamrock Bowl and this Irish takeover actually goes back to 1952 and it was an ambassador then, John Hearn was his name, who took it upon himself to bring Shamrock to the White House mm. um, and it was President Truman at the time and President Truman gladly accepted the Shamrock Bowl and this went down very well and then the next year Woodford Crystal came on board and actually gave the bowl for free, that was 1953 mm. and uh, the Shamrock was then the newly elected President Eisenhower was there and it was assumed that this presentation had been made on behalf of the President of Ireland and so Eisenhower wrote a note back thanking the President of Ireland <laughs> for the gift of Shamrock when actually it was just a smart, quick-thinking Irish diplomat in 1952 <laughs> who set this pattern in motion Amazing. where you now have this scenario where it's an entire takeover of a whole day. Now over the years it's been ambassadors, it's been Taoiseach, it was the President on one occasion and it's been US Presidents, sometimes it's been Secretary of State who've received it. Yeah. But uh, since the kind of mid-90s um, in the lead up to the Good Friday Agreement when Bill Clinton was in office and there were a huge number of Irish Americans in the Clinton administration who really cared strongly about Northern Ireland issues and the Good Friday Agreement um, getting that over the line in the peace process. So since then it was decided by the diplomats again in the Department of Foreign Affairs mm that it should be the Taoiseach that goes. It shouldn't be an ambassador, it shouldn't be a minister, right. that it should be that high level. And it's been matched ever since by the president of the day greeting the Taoiseach, uh, Taoiseach of the day. And now it's spanned into something that goes from 6 a.m. until 11 or midnight. Wow. <laughs> What's that actually like? Like yeah. when you're in the room, you know, watching it all happen, what, what is the day like? Is it frenetic? Uh, apart from tiring. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I've been privileged enough to be there um, five years, four years professionally and one, in a pr one year in a personal capacity. And the first three years that I was there professionally was President Obama. And then my fourth year when I was there professionally was President Trump. Um, and I have to say, as an Irish person, you know, and, and I think anyone who's ever been in this scenario I was in would say it's an incredible privilege because we think we're a great big country and we're terribly important, but we are just a little country in the Atlantic. Yeah. Yeah. And so to have that level of access and power and something that much bigger countries who have much greater strategic relationships with the US would give they're all the teeth for yeah. um, for us to have that and to have it every day is, is an incredible privilege um, mm. and to be there and to be with the vice president of the day, the president of the day, the speaker of the day, all of that at, at close quarters um, is really quite incredible. It is very hectic. It is very busy. It starts, as I say, about 6 a.m. in the morning um, with breakfast at the vice president's house, the Naval Observatory in Washington, D.C. And uh, I'll never forget my first year because we were all the media were corralled 
child, you've, we have to get there before the principals, as they call them, get there before the Taoiseach and the vice president get there. So you're held in the vice president's pool house, um, which Naturally. is exactly as it sounds. <laughs> it's a very large swimming pool and a pool house filled with towels and where the vice president of the day and his family would get changed to go for swims in the summer and whatever, um, you know, and there's uh, usually tea and coffee and a few croissants or whatever put on. And there's always a pile of napkins that have the vice presidential seal printed on them. And everyone's trying to be really cool, but actually really wants a napkin as a souvenir. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, after you've been held in there for half an hour or so, suddenly all the napkins are gone. <laughs> um, that's so funny. <laughs> and of course... Um, you were kind of the protagonist of a viral moment um, at, at one point in the White House when uh, there was a, a bilateral call going on between uh, Donald Trump and Leo Varadkar. And, and Trump kind of beckoned you over and you had this interaction that uh, you describe in your book and you say that it was a weird experience because you feel like people were imposing meanings on it which you didn't yourself necessarily recognize. Can you tell us about what happened there? Well, I wouldn't say I was the protagonist, firstly. <laughs> um, I was just a journalist in a room doing her job. Um, but, yeah, and, you know, it's um, I've been a journalist for nearly, well, the guts of 20 years, and something that lasted 50 seconds is mm. the thing I get asked most often about. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it is what it is. It's been well documented on YouTube and every other form of social media going and in almost every uh, news outlet in the world at this stage. But uh, the interesting thing, I suppose, for me was the aftermath because, um, you know, no journalist ever wants to be the story. Um, you're there to get the story and deliver it to your audience, your viewers, your listeners, your readers, whatever it may be. Mm. Um, and in that case, it was very interesting because... U.S. politics is so polarized at the moment, and President Trump himself is such a dividing character. People either love him or loathe him. That um, what happened in the Oval Office, as quick as it was, fed two narratives, and people latched on to either, you know, oh, people say he hates the media, but look, he's being really nice to this journalist, and then look how he treats women was the other narrative, you know, yeah. and I, I didn't say anything about it because I had a job to do, and at the time I was Washington correspondent, so I had to go back into the White House the next day, mm. Um, mm. but it was just very interesting to see how all <coughs> around the world commentators and columnists write articles based on their interpretation of how I was feeling or what was going through my mind. So for someone who is a member of the media, it was interesting to have the tables turned and see what that's like and right. what it feels like when your phone doesn't stop ringing <laughs> people trying to get interviews with you yeah. and pinging you on Twitter and email and all the rest of it. So it was yeah. a it was an interesting learning situation. Huh. You mentioned um, how many Irish Americans there were in the Clinton administration, and there, that was really important at a time when um, the, you know there was a great American involvement in peace talks in Northern Ireland and so on. Now, of course, like quite famously, there's also a lot of Irish surnames in the Trump administration now. Um, is there a kind of an Irish American co political contingent uh, in Washington, and does it lean necessarily Republican or Democrat? Would you say? 
it's mixed between both parties. It's yeah. it's really bipartisan, I would have to say. So on Capitol Hill, there's an organisation called the Friends of Ireland Caucus. So that's made up of Congress people and senators from both parties who have some connection to Ireland or some affinity to Ireland, and they um, they meet quite regularly. And um, you know, having spoken to the Congress people and senators who have been in that caucus over the years, they really enjoy it because sometimes when the politics on the floor of the various houses is very polarised and divisive. They go into a room and talk about things that are dear to all of them about Ireland, mm. and it lends to this kind of reaching across the aisle. Okay, um, so, so it's like bipartisan cooperation. Yeah, now they can Ireland. leave the room and hate each other again, <laughs> but you know, while they're in there, they're they're, they're all on the same page. Um, and as you say, there are plenty of people with Irish surnames in all levels of the Trump administration. It was the same in the Obama administration, mm. you know, and that partly comes back to the fact that 30-odd million Americans claim Irish ancestry, so that's just a lot of Irish surnames going around. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but also it's because um, the Irish people, particularly in the last 100 years or so in the US, have had a very strong core of public service. So be it police service, as you mentioned, fire brigade or public service, City Hall level, mm. right the way up to Capitol Hill and on into the White House. So you find that at every level. Whether there is any um, motivating factor to that anymore is the subject of great discussion, whether it is just an emotional tie or whether there is such a thing as an Irish voting bloc mm, anymore. I was wondering about that, actually. Does that really exist? I, w I would say based on my sort of um, four years there that it doesn't. Mm. Um, perhaps at very localised level for a school board or something where all the Italian families still vote for the Italian person, all the Irish families still vote for the yeah. Irish person. Outside of that, um, particularly at uh, you know US Congress level and, and at general election level for presidential elections and so on, most politicians would tell you that there's no such thing as an Irish voting bloc. Right. Is there an impression that there is? Is there a feeling in America that... There's an impression in Ireland that there right. is. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> like, you know, as I say, we like to think that we're a very important country and we're mm. a very important people, and we are. But mm. when you get to the great vastness of the United States, a really interesting dynamic has happened, particularly over kind of the last 50 or 60 years, as you've had more ethnicities coming into the US and you've had the number of Irish immigrants um, reduced basically through mm. various um, immigration policies that they're actually, you know, no, even the most Irish politician in the most Irish of or old Irish neighborhood will tell you that running as the Irish guy or the Irish gal is not enough to get you elected. Right. You can right. no longer appeal to just the Irish Americans in your constituency. You have mm. to be broader than that. And you, you, you know, some issues overlap. Um, for example, in Boston and in Massachusetts, and it's interesting what you were saying, Emma, is some of the older politicians, the issues they were running on were quite working class issues to ap appeal to the Irish communities, but the same issues appeal to the African American communities as well. And they all had the same difficulties with bosses and, you know, they were, workers' rights was a big part of it. Mm. So those things all aligned. Whereas over the years when you have more and more ethnicities coming into it and more and more issues are, are, are on the, the doorsteps when um, politicians are going looking for votes, that it isn't enough anymore to just be 
an Irish American politician that right. won't get you elected. This kind of brings to mind um, Congressman ben Brendan Boyle, who I think made history because both he and his brother were sworn into positions of public office in the same week. Um, their dad is actually from Donegal and their mum is also the daughter of Irish immigrants. So they had a very Irish upbringing. Um, and he has this week in the last, I think, two weeks, been speaking out about Brexit and the backstop and saying that there's this, you know, contingent in Congress that continues to really mm. care about Ireland and, you know, will stick up for Ireland in this matter. Um, how real is that, do you think? Um, is, it, is it really the case um, after the kind of 1998 Good Friday Agreement that that has lasted up to the present day? Or has there been a somewhat of a dying off of investment in Irish affairs in Washington? I think it ebbs and flows. So definitely around the time of the Good Friday Agreement and the Bill Clinton administration, as I say, it was, a, it was something that was to the forefront of a lot of the people who were around at that time. And that was something that they cared deeply about. And then for a lot of Americans, the Good Friday Agreement was signed. Oh, there was peace in our time. Yeah. So they kind of almost moved on to the next issue. And then the Celtic Tiger was roaring and Ireland had more of a view in the eyes of America as a place to do business. It was a place that all the big multinationals were moving to. Taxation became a big issue mm. for the parties to be worrying about. Mm. Um, and, you know, so that, that issue of the peace process which had been so to the forefront of Irish-American affairs for a long time, almost took a backseat. Mm. Now with Brexit looming ever closer to us, um, it has become a big deal again. You know, with so much talk of a no-deal Brexit returning to a hard border, um, when you had the Taoiseach in Davos a couple of weeks ago outlining on Bloomberg about what that hard border would look like and mentioning things that people had long forgotten, like a physical infrastructure, like armed guards at a border and so on, that brought it back to the consciousness. So now uh, some of those Irish-American politicians, as you mentioned, Congressman Boyle from Philadelphia, um, they view that they have a role again to kind of bring some of that influence to bear. So he tabled a resolution, uh, introduced it on the floor of the House of Congress about two and a half weeks ago. It hasn't been voted on yet and it'll be a while, but um, calling for basically the US Congress to make a, a statement that it was against the return of a hard border on the island of Ireland in the event of a no-deal Brexit. Also, interestingly, last week, 40 people from both parties and no party, former Congress people and senators and business people, signed a letter to Taoiseach Varadkar and Prime Minister Theresa May, basically saying that the United States is one of the co-guarantors of the Good Friday Agreement. Mm. And so they feel a vested interest to make sure that the provisions there are protected because right. particularly if you follow the discussions in the House of Commons closely, there's perhaps a lack of understanding as to just what was agreed to in the Good Friday Agreement um, and what can be steamrolled over or not. Yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's an international document lodged with the United Nations that guarantees certain things mm. and can't be just rolled back. So um, that was another kind of development where you had Irish Americans saying, and a number of the, the 40 co-signers to that letter were the people from 1998 who had helped navigate through mm. the process. I mean, Senator George Mitchell was one of the signers. And so it's interesting that you see this coming back to the forefront, like the sort of uh, Irish Americans nearly 
view themselves as the knights in shining armor or something, right. and you know, Ireland might need our help, here's something we can do. And the, the other interesting point about what's happened just in the last 10 days, two weeks, is how that's playing out in some of the British media. Mm. Because there has then been this almost bit of concern bubbling under the surface that, hang on a minute, if there are all these Irish Americans on Capitol Hill who care so deeply about Ireland and no hard border and what happens post-Brexit, well, what does that mean for Britain? What does that mean for the UK? When you have someone like Congressman Richie Neal from Massachusetts, who's a very staunch Irish American, very proud of his, his heritage, and he's chairperson now of the Ways and Means Committee. And the Ways and Means Committee is a really, really powerful committee in the US Congress. And trade deals that the US wants to sign up to have to pass through the US Congress for a seal of approval. So it'll have to come through this committee where you have an Irish American who cares about what happens to Ireland. And, you know, there's this sense now in certain parts of the British media that, uh-oh. Yeah, <laughs> you so like that amazing tra tra trade deal that Trump will give us suddenly doesn't seem like such a sure thing. Exactly. Right. Um, I might finish um, by just asking you about immigration policy. Of course, Tim mentioned earlier the large number of undocumented Irish people that there are in the United States. W when that debate was going on um, in, in the US when you were covering it, was there a lot of concern about how it could affect Irish people? And do you think that they, they could be affected? Or is this really uh, going, gonna hit people of color, essentially, and not Irish people? Irish people can be people of colour yes. too. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I apologise. That was clumsy. Yeah. I'll rephrase the question. Um, is, it, is it something that's not going to essentially affect white people? What are you, what are you talking about there when you're talking about immigration? The, yeah, the turn, I mean, what we've seen since the beginning of the Trump administration is, um, you know, people being stopped for driving offences and being reported by ICE and all this kind of thing. So this kind of crackdown. It's a mood as well as, you know, the concrete, any concrete measures that are being made. So I wondered whether um, there was a kind of an awareness of um, undocumented Irish people and how they might be affected by that um, or... Um, uh, whether that was something that featured in the campaign when you were covering it? Um, undocumented Irish did not feature in US presidential campaign yeah. whatsoever. Mm. Um, and it's a numbers game. So right. there's estimated to be 11, 12 million undocumented or illegal immigrants, depending what phrase you want to use, in the US. Um, in terms of undocumented or illegal Irish, it's estimated anywhere from 10,000 to 50,000. So it's a tiny number. Right. Um, in terms of, you know, Donald Trump had campaigned on a very, I'm going to be heavy handed with undocumented immigrants. And, you know, that's something that we saw from the first week that he was in office with various executive orders and so on that he signed, some of which have been challenged through the courts. But he has uh, given extra funding to immigration and customs and border patrol agents and so on. Um, and obviously we see what's going on with the wall now. And he's declared a state of national emergency just today on the Mexican border. Um, but nobody in the US uh, ever singles out the Irish constituency because, and this kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier, that there's no constituency anymore that's just Irish. So a congressperson or a senator can't be saying, oh, we've got to save the Irish guys when the Mexicans in his district, the Guatemalans, the from everywhere else people mm. will say, well, what about us? Why are you singling out the Irish people? Mm. And the numbers are tiny. Um, 
actually more people were deported in President Obama's last year in 2016 than were deported in the first year of President Trump in 2017. Now this year, the numbers are slightly rising um, and there's been a lot of commentary, particularly in Irish American media, about the numbers of Irish people being deported. Again, it's still tiny. 2016, it was 26 Irish people were deported. 2017, it was 34. And last year, it was 47. Now, for those individuals, that's obviously major, and I'm not downplaying the impact on their lives or their communities, but there were 141,000 Mexicans deported last mm. year. Mm -hmm. So um, if you think, you know, again, these things matter immensely to us and to our communities. They matter immensely to Irish-based politicians rather than Irish-American politicians because they're the ones who, when they're trying to get elected in, Cork, Mayo, Leitrim, Dublin, wherever, are listening to the heartbroken mammies and daddies saying about their son or daughter in America who can't come home for the granny's funeral. And, you know, we've all heard those stories. Um, but actually, it's a different situation in the US because the numbers of Irish people are just so tiny by mm. comparison. Mm. Um, I'd love to open up to questions from the floor at this point. Um, yeah. So we're going to have a roving microphone, <laughs> which uh, Nora will hand out. So if you have a question for us, just put your hand up and uh, Nora will bring the microphone to you. And don't um, forget to introduce yourself and let us know who you are as yeah, well. Yeah, do say your name and, and, and who you are, where you're from maybe, uh, before your question. And do keep it brief because we have run over slightly, if, uh, if you can. Um, I might start out uh, with a question that we got over Twitter from yeah. a listener, which was, um, it was actually for you, Katrina, which was, did you feel a cultural affinity with Irish Americans? Or did you feel like there's been a large divergence between kind of Irish Americans and people who are from Ireland? That's a great question. And it's one that fuels many dinner party debates, <laughs> I can tell you, in the, yeah. in the US, because uh, you meet plenty of Irish Americans and the Ireland that they describe and that they love and they cherish is not an Ireland that I've ever lived in. You know, um, and like what you were saying earlier about more liberal p policies and so on in recent times and referendum on marriage equality and repealing the eighth and so on. Um, much of Irish America is quite conservative, quite Catholic still, and would have a different set of sort of family values or social values than maybe you would see in, our, in the modern day Ireland. Mm. Um, you know, there's also still that sense that um, we're a very poor country some of the time, and when people go back on holidays, they want to see. I think your mic might have thatched cottages. Thatched cottages, that's <laughs> one. No, no, that's Widows and pigs. And yeah, stuff, that's, yeah. Um, yeah, that's not everyone, obviously. You know, and there's still, like, when I first got there and I'd meet people for the first time and they'd say, oh, you're Irish. I can't wait to hang out with you on St. Patrick's Day or, as Americans might say, St. Patty's Day. Yeah. Uh, you know, because they think they're going to have this amazing, crazy, drunken party with a real-life Irish-born person. And you're sort of trying to explain that St. Patrick's Day is much bigger party get drunk all day thing in America than it is in Ireland, you yeah. know, where growing up most people went to the parade and it was a day off work or school in the middle of the week yeah. and you could break your Lent and eat as much chocolate as you wanted <laughs> to and whatever. So there, there is a difference there, but, you know, it's an incredible privilege as an Irish person when you're in America with Irish Americans to just see how people who maybe have never set foot in our country love it so much and they've such an emotional 
bond to it and connection to it and they say they're Irish even if it's actually four grannies back yeah. were Irish and they've never been there but it yeah. matters to them mm. right. and that's really a lovely thing as a sure. person when you're out of your own country as well that you because we can all moan about where we're from yeah. we all do but when you find when you find people like that who just love Ireland it's <laughs> really affirming it is so nice sorry well, you I, I often feel that well, no, I, I know the Ireland that they imagine as well, like certainly isn't one that includes people like me. Hmm. So I've had, like, I think I've thrown a few Irish Americans. <laughs> I remember, yeah, going over like on a jate. So I had kind of one experience in Ireland, where, sorry, in America, where I was really kind of in white America. And that's when I went on a J2 visa with like my Irish school friends. And um, yeah, Irish Americans loved them, but just like, did not know what to make of me. They were just like, how does this work? Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> not that comfortable Gosh. with Gosh. <laughs> um, well, maybe we can take some questions yeah, from the audience. You just raise your hand. If yeah, anyone any, has one. is anyone out there? Um, something I, I always say is like, although, um, you know, it, we kind of complain about the stereotypes of Ireland and everything, um, that people might have is actually a huge cultural asset that Ireland is famous, you know, kind of internationally, like, which is disproportionate to its actual size. So, like, okay, maybe it's shamrocks and thatched cottages and things, but at least people know who we are, do you know what I mean? Um, so I think there's a lot of countries that should like that. Um, so, yeah, did we have any questions there in the audience? Yeah, I Great. see um, a gentleman here in the front. Hi, guys. Uh, my name is John Egan. A question for Emma. I'm yeah? I'm really curious. I'm assuming that you probably have to go through some sort of forced assimilation, bereft of natural kind of um, uh, influencers in Ireland that would have come from a similar background, would have looked like you as well. And I'm really curious about your observation of Irish kids now, because there's so, there's a, there is a significantly larger population, especially of kids who've come straight from Africa. And they have more examples. And there's kids now like uh, like Aidan Harris, who's looking like a, a reasonable MBA prospect. And there's a lot of musicians who are coming out of Ireland and they're traveling as well. How, what's your observation about the Ireland that you grew up in versus the contrast for kids who are growing up now? Do they have natural examples like the root negatives of the world who they can look to and say, actually, Ireland has a place for me? Or are they still forced into a position where maybe they have to be trailblazers in their own right and try to figure out what it means to be Irish to them. And the last thing I'd say is, you were talking and you reminded me of, of listening to Graham Norton maybe 10 or 15 years ago. Where he <laughs> talked about, and this is a weird simile, I appreciate that, but he used to talk about being Protestant in West Cork growing up, that he never felt Irish because to be Irish was to be white Irish Catholic. Mm -hmm. And when he left to come to London, it took him years to begin to understand his own Irishness, having been distant from it, and seeing Ireland mature as well to be a place that did feel comfortable for him. And I'm wondering as well if you felt anything similar to that, having been out of Ireland and kind of a retrospective on it. So. Great question. Yeah, yeah I, love I, I love those questions. Um, yeah, so the first one, um, yeah, I think Ireland is still like a, an overwhelmingly white country, but there, yeah, there, there are recognisable non-white Irish people now, which was not something that I had growing up at all, apart from Phil Linnett and Samantha Mumba when I was <laughs> older. Um, uh, and I used to get mistaken as her frequently. I've, 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 I've signed autographs as Samantha Mumba, as I thought Phil just might as well. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I can compare it because my, my son comes home with me, back to Dublin with me, like, regularly, and he absolutely loves it. 
and the reaction to him when he when he goes out to play with the kids um, where my mum lives, there's no reaction. There's no reaction to him. Um, the the experiences that he that I had, um, I can't I can't imagine those things being said to him or him being perceived in that way. He doesn't go to Dublin and feel like and feel like he doesn't go to Dublin and feel like he really stands out at all. Like he he just loves going there and actually identifies very, very strongly as Irish. Um, so when I, also the children that he's playing with have changed as well. I mean, they're probably mostly, they're probably mostly white, but like some of them are Polish. Um, some of them are Indian as well. So it's not just kind of like all like white Irish Catholic. So there's, there's already kind of more diversity um, in, in, the children that, in, in the children that he'd be playing with. In terms of the comparison to Graham Norton, um, I, I, I'm a, a big fan, so take that kindly. Um, I, yeah, I, I totally get that. So I had a really, um, I think because my Irishness was like always contested, it was always like, oh, but you're not really Irish. I was a bit like, okay, fine. Like, I'm not. Okay, like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna beg to be this thing. Mm. That's grand. Um, and then when I moved to England um, to go to university, um, actually, I had really wanted to go to America, but I couldn't afford the fees and didn't get a scholarship. So I had to go to, I had uh, going to going to London was my kind of plan B. But um, I, um, what was I gonna say? Yeah, I became, I guess, confronted by my Irishness and like so many things that I thought were just like normal things that everyone did. I was just like, oh my God, they're like really, really Irish things. Like, and I'm actually, I'm actually like, I'm, I'm an Irish person. Like I, I am, like I can't, I can't, I can't deny it. And um, I think it, but it, it was still, it was still weird for me because even though there were things about me that seemed very different that were pointed out in England, um, people would still really kind of struggle with the concept of me being of me being Irish. So it was like, oh, you're different, but we can't really like locate. We still can't really mm. we still can't really locate you. But my relationship to Ireland has just been like I guess continually like unfolding, and um, I think I I have a great relationship with it now. And I would even live there again, which is something that I thought I would never be able to say. Mm. And I would also raise children there, which is something that I thought I wouldn't be able to do because I was terrified of the prospect of somebody kind of experiencing the alterity that I had. But I think, it's, I think it has changed significantly and in really positive ways that, yeah, I think it would be a great place to raise kids. Any other questions? Yes. Uh, Dan Harvey, proud Corkman. <laughs> it's uh, to Katrina. Katrina, when you were handing over to your successor, what advice did you prioritise? And uh, did he, has he thanked you since? I couldn't possibly give that advice out in public. <laughs> <laughs> That's my answer. <laughs> That's the end of that. All right. Amazing. Short and sweet. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> nothing, nothing to add. There's, right. there's tricks of the trade that cannot be shared <laughs> <laughs> on a podcast. Yeah. Okay, journalistic ethics, indeed. Uh, can Did we, we have a question here in the front, or maybe yes? Yeah, 
Um, I suppose I wanted to ask about um, this position of liminality that uh, Irish Americans occupy within whiteness and the debate on that in mm. academia now. So the, somebody wrote a book, I can't remember who, what his name was, but how the Irish became Theodore white. Theodore Allen. Yes, that's yeah. right. So this idea that they weren't white and then they were, mm -hmm. and then that's recently been more contested by saying, some people are saying they've always been able to benefit from the privileges of whiteness in America. So I'd be interested to hear, to hear all of your thoughts sure. on that. Where to start? Tim, you've done a little bit of research into like caricatures of Irish people and how they were sort of characterised as animalistic in a lot of... Yeah. In, a, in a certain period. Yeah, I mean, no, I haven't. I mean, I think where it coincides with race theory is it starts in the 19th century. I've mostly worked in the 18th century, so it's not quite the same thing. Um, but this is, you know, it, this is a feature of, I suppose, um, alterity. Like you say, uh, dehumanization, you know, happens all over the world. And one of the classic examples is to try and make the other into an animal, into a non-human, um, which is something that in the 19th century we can see in, um, in caricatures of Irish people and the characters of African-Americans, characters of others, too. Um, I think there's a moment there, a, an interesting moment in the height of eugenics, um, where I think there you can almost concretely say that the Irish people aren't white, um, in the eyes of eugenesis. Um, uh, rarely is it that clear-cut. Maybe you disagree with me, uh, Emma. Um, rarely, rarely is it that uh, clear-cut. I mean, this was a point, however, when, I mean, once race theory, race theory which kind of... Uh, like scientific race theory, quote unquote, uh, which kind of emerges at the end of the 18th century, kind of reaches its zenith with eugenics in about 1910. And like Irish people were quite key to that because the whole, you know, the, the natural, the logical conclusion of like intensified, um, quote unquote, biological race theory was that everyone is on some kind of scale. Um, of, of this race ladder. And so people like the Irish were very important. Um, they were people who looked like the British, but they were wrong. You know, like the, they were the British, but they were wrong. And that you could maybe find a, um, a, a biological reason for this. Um, you know, depicting their faces a little bit more squarely suddenly becomes a very, very powerful thing to do. And then suddenly describing them, for instance, as Celts, and then it gets brought down. Western coast Celts, um, Irish-speaking Western coast Celt, black breed, Shetland breed, Irish-speaking Celts, until it comes down to like almost individuals. Um, I think there's definitely a feeling there that the Irish have to be a separate race. Um, uh, no, that's not true at all. They're kind that of the graded on a scale. Of yeah, separate race isn't somehow. quite the right language, but um, <laughs> not white. They're, yeah. um, that they have to be somehow not white in order for the hierarchy to uh, be coherent. Uh, but yeah, I'll, I'll pass it over. Yeah, I, I completely agree, but I think it depends where you are geographically, and there's different things, maybe there's different processes happening simultaneously as well. Because when we see the um, invention of there being an idea, the idea of a white race, and the invention of the idea of there being a, a black race, which kind of starts in the late 1600s, there's um, a document that's actually um, distributed in Barbados, and it's advancing the idea of white people existing, because the different European people that were in Barbados, um, or th that existed, um, wouldn't have had a sense of themselves as sharing a pan-white identity. They wouldn't have seen themselves as having this inclusive, racialized white identity. And the colonial authorities <clears throat> are trying to encourage that, um, that, that 
that sense of whiteness, the idea of whiteness. Um, and that's basically one of the motivating factors is that there are poor white people and rich white people. There's also like enslaved Africans. The poor whites and the enslaved Africans outnumber the rich whites. They don't want any kind of poten potential. This is one of the reasons. Potential kind of shared uh, recognition of oppression emerging between those groups and potentially overthrowing the small minority. Um, and within that early um, invention of whiteness, Irish people would have been kind of perceived as white in that. But what Tim is saying is also accurate, so there's, is also true. So there's different things happening. I guess the, the kind of universally just be, the, the, how we would now kind of unquestioningly accept Irish people as white isn't something that has been historically consistent. Um, did I see a hand up now down in the, one of the latter rows? <laughs> Don't be shy. Yeah, oh, there's yeah. one. Uh, hi, um, I'm just wondering, because uh, at the start uh, you were talking about kind of uh, Irish perceptions of Nigeria and that kind of thing. I'm just wondering, uh, looking at it from the other way around, uh, did, you ever, uh, did you ever find uh, what's kind of the, what was the perception of Ireland in Nigeria? Or was oh. there any? Or were people <laughs> like, oh, that's the same as England, isn't it? Or is there kind of any separate perception of it? Um, okay, yeah. Um, let me see. So it's kind of, it was kind of the reverse, um, where there was a stigma kind of attached to being um, of Nigerian descent, in Ireland, in Nigeria, you'd almost be, there was kind of like maybe like, there could be like a status attached to being light-skinned, to being mixed-race looking. Um, so it was, it, was kind, it, was kind of the, it was kind of the reverse. And people did know about Ireland. Um, again, um, Catholic missionaries have a role to play. Um, particularly, my father is from an ethnic group called the Yoruba, and my family is actually Muslim. Um, but there was a lot of um, there were a lot of Catholic missionaries, and they mostly worked in um, Igbo land, which is in eastern Nigeria. And I spoke to like one elderly Igbo man um, who told me that he'd gone to um, like a Christian brother school in Nigeria growing up. And so to his mind, Ireland was this huge and powerful country. This is the image of it that had been, that had been kind of, he'd been indoctrinated with. <laughs> and when he grew up and moved to England, uh, he realized it was actually very tiny and <laughs> quite, quite different to, uh, to how it had been presented to him. So yeah, there would be, yeah. I don't know if that answers your question. All <laughs> right. Okay, now I'm going to have to put a halt to things here because we're way over time. We are. Um, listen, yeah. it's been an absolutely wonderful evening. We have to thank both of our guests, Katrina Perry and Emma Dabiri. Please, a round of applause. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>we also um, want to give a huge thanks to the Centre Culturel Irlandais, of course, yes. to Nora and to Steph, who have been magnificent in setting this all up for absolutely. us. Absolutely. And thank supporting so us much. and everything. Thank you. And for those of you who are listening uh, to this online, uh, we really advise you, if you ever stop by Paris, uh, to drop in to the Centre Culturel Irlandais. They have a wonderful set of events happening all the time. And also, it's just a beautiful old building with really, really interesting Stunning. links to Ireland. Um, now, before you all run off, uh, when you came in tonight, you might have seen one of these little cards on your seats. 
So this card has the website address where you can find all of our episodes um, in order to subscribe and listen to them. And there's also a link for our Patreon page. Um, Patreon, uh, if you're not familiar with it, is uh, a system which allows people to support us and in exchange you can get all sorts of benefits, including loads of exclusive episodes that we release just for our Patreon supporters. Mm. So you can check us out there. Um, we also have these tote bags for sale tonight, which you can see uh, demonstrated here uh, by the beautiful Aoife. Um, and uh, yeah, they're 10 quid. So please, uh, yeah, you can uh, come up and, and buy one of All those All the money afterwards. goes to supporting the podcast, it of course, of some course. more live events like this. Um, and Katrina Barry is also has a few copies of her book um, in America for sale, which is also 10. So you can get a book uh, and a bag to take it home with, if you like. <laughs> so um, just punch <laughs> That's 25% off the retail price, I believe, yeah, right? The it is indeed, yeah. book. Okay. So, um, yeah, thank All you right. so much, everybody. Oh, one last thing. Uh, we are going to go for a drink after a little bit later. So if you want to follow us, we'll be in Le, Le Requin Chagrin, as in the sad shark. That's just... Oh. Uh, <laughs> it's on Place de, la, de la Contrescarpe, <laughs> just over there. Or you can just follow us if you get lost. Le Requin Chagrin. So we might see you there later. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you.